Hello, welcome to Going Deeper. My name is Marcy Sklove, and before we begin, I'd like to say that in addition to being able to watch these shows when they broadcast on Channel 12 and on the Amherst Media website, I now have my own website, marcysklove.com, where you can access all of the previous shows. Also, you can contact me at goingdeeperinterviews at gmail.com, and I would love to hear from you. So today my guest is Meg Gage. Meg is a classic example of why many Amherst residents come to live here. Her family moved to Amherst in 1954. Meg was eight years old. And they came really because of the quality of the schools and for the opportunity um, for Meg's father to create a medical practice here. So we will be speaking about Meg's long-term experience of Amherst, how it's changed and grown over time, and currently as a charter commissioner and a town meeting member, Meg has offered a lot of her time and energy towards town affairs. So we'll be hearing about that as well. And all of that will be in part two. Meg has also influenced the national stage through her work in the peace movement and in the field of philanthropy. She co-founded the Trap Rock Peace Center and created the Peace Development Fund and the Proteus Fund. Both are thriving nonprofits who work to create collaborations of grassroots activists and to fund those working on the ground in very serious, important issues all throughout the country. So, that's a big Thank introduction. You, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Yeah. So I often start by asking um, about your early life, and I particularly am interested in what some of the factors, some of the things that happened to you or lessons that you learned as a child informed the work you did when you were a, a grown-up. Well, certainly the biggest factor, probably for many people, and certainly for me, uh, was my family. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents were very uh, engaged in social justice work in all sorts of ways mm -hmm. from a very early age. Uh, uh, when I, one of my, uh, we moved to Amherst from rural western Appalachian, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. where my father was, went with my mother when I was five months old because they, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was HEW then, or what, the needed physicians there. Yeah. He had 20,000 patients, I think. Gosh. Did his house calls in a Jeep. Um, he uh, delivered babies, and sometimes the family was so poor, the father of the new baby would just go out and shoot a deer and bring it mm. over, completely intact. Wow. I have memories, faint memories, of my mother grinding up the venison in the garage oh, and putting gosh. it in this huge freezer that we had. Yeah. Uh, and they uh, were really important in the community mm -hmm. uh, there. I remember um, my f there were 3,000 black migrant workers who came through town every summer from mm -hmm. Alabama. And they were scary. Mm -hmm. uh, they were hard to understand. Um, they were illiterate. Uh, one of the things my father did as chairman of the school committee back then mm -hmm. was to uh, 
enable those children to go to school even though they weren't there for the whole year. Yeah. Um, but we moved to Amherst, I, I understand, I was only eight, because it was so limited uh, and yeah. we, it was so conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think now about how the, the incredible contrast, um, sometimes I think it isn't in this country today so much between rich and poor mm -hmm. uh, as between rural and urban. Interesting. Or between black and white even. Mm. Uh, it was a very, very uh, uninformed and ignorant mm -hmm. community. My, my mother used to have opera night and she would play records and people would come and listen to the music yeah. and she would explain. I mean, they had probably never heard of an opera. Yeah. And we would have had to go to private school, as they said, from you know seventh grade on. Mm -hmm. But there were the um, an example of one of my early experiences around race. So there were three thousand black migrant workers, uh, and my father was the only physician. So if even only say one percent of ten one tenth of one percent got in a knife fight, yeah, what is that? Three people. Yeah. All of them came to our house. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it was usually late at night, often on a Saturday. Did it continue to stay scary? Very the scary because my mother was a nurse and my parents would both go in yeah. with these scary, bleeding, screaming people oh, wow. who looked so different into yeah. the office. And uh, they would be, I remember once a truck pulled up, it was summer, and they pulled this injured man's body off the back of the truck and oh. put it on our lawn. And I still remember how red the blood in the green grass oh, was very, gosh. but it was yeah. very, and my, my mother would call some neighbor to come and be with us. And she and my father would go in to the office and it was, it was scary. And so mm -hmm. you started, to, I guess they could see why, you know, people would make racist conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we moved to Amherst and my father and mother both were very, engaged. Um, mm -hmm. My father was involved in, um, I remember once when I was about 12 or 13, walking, just coming into the living room, and it was suddenly, I just discovered it was full of all these people mm -hmm. planning a demonstration at Amherst Town Meeting. And uh, I, so I joined in, it was my first demonstration. How Francis Crow was there, 12 or 13. Wow. So Amherst was proposing uh, investing in fallout shelters. Okay. I mean, we had the duck and cover and yeah. all that. Uh, and this was a protest against that you can't make it okay to have a nuclear war. Yeah. And then we yeah. were with picket signs and, but oh, you know, my gosh. own father was there, so it was sure. cool. Yeah. And Francis was there. That's when I met Francis That's and amazing. Tom Crow. And Tom yeah. was a physician with my father. They were friends. Oh, okay. And your father, <clears throat> As a medical doctor here in Amherst, what were some of the roles that he played in terms of race issues and different things that he did with the university? And right. Well, he, if, um, he was very involved in starting a commission to examine uh, housing violations. Mm. Another time I came downstairs on Sunday morning and he said, come with me to a meeting. And it was a meeting up in the office above what was um, Bowles Shoes, which is now kind of Amherst Books. Okay. Uh -huh. And there were a whole bunch of people, black and white, black people I'd never seen, talking about housing discrimination and what they were going to do about it. Wow. 
And my father at the university, went to the university to direct the health services. He hired a number of African-American physicians. Mm -hmm. And he would go with them to get their hair cut, to make sure they could see the houses that were for sale. Yeah, um, yeah. And my mother was the one of the founders of Round the World Women. Mm. It was called Round the World Wives then because it was mostly sure. wives. Yeah. Um, but we lived on North Pleasant Street, uh, where you wouldn't think of a family living now, where Hair by Harlow is. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, actually, the Hair by Harlow part of that building was our yard. <laughs> oh wow! So my bedroom doesn't have a window. It, but um, there were two women. Uh, wives of graduate students who committed suicide about three weeks apart from each other, mm. and they lived near each other. Near These were international students? They were foreign students, graduate students' wives. Right, right. And people who knew these graduate students didn't even know they'd brought wives with them. Wow. These women so didn't speak isolated. English, they didn't know each other, they didn't have any friends, and they were, it was January, and it was just totally, and one committed suicide, and maybe the other read about it, the other did three weeks later. Mm. And they lived on Fearing and Lincoln, I think, oh, very, wow. I mean, short distance from our sure. home. So my mother and a friend of hers um, created this organization for international women. That's so, so great. It was just in my family, a lot of activism. Yeah. and yeah. And we had one of those households where some families, I think, if there's tension or conflict or somebody comes and there's a, mm -hmm. an issue, it sort of buzzes around, don't mention uh -huh. this. Right. Whatever you do, don't bring that up. In my family, it was the opposite. Be sure to ask about this because oh. it'll be, you know, yeah, yeah. they don't agree. Or, I love that. And uh, so we had, you know, heated yeah, sure. discussions about all sorts of things, medical oh. things, everything. I remember once my father... Was, dice, was describing the layers of the brain or something, and he was using his baked potato. And we had somebody over for dinner, and they just got kind of green and couldn't eat anymore. We were all eating our baked potatoes, watching him do this. Oh, that's so <laughs> Wow. But, um, you know, it was that kind of a... Yeah. So I think there's no doubt how I how became you, an activist. Yeah. Um, there's a lot to or cover. Or whatever it is I became. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot to cover in terms of the different places that you lived and living abroad <clears throat> and all the work that you did prior to um, Trap Rock days. But I want to kind of move forward, fast forward, mm -hmm. uh, to when you stopped doing peace movement work and what was the bridge that then got you mm -hmm. into the philanthropy sure. world? Well, the bridge, the peace work that I did at the Trap Rock Peace Center was very much around the nuclear arms race yeah. and what we then called the nuclear moratorium. And I was working on passing uh, with others, Randy Keeler and Francis and uh, Pauline Bassett and others, this yeah. uh, uh, ballot initiative in the four western congressional districts, state congressional districts in Massachusetts in 1980. And... Uh, I became aware of how little funding there was available for that work, that all yeah. the funding for uh, disarmament work, which was what the frame we used then, sure. uh, went to think tanks, universities. Um, mm -hmm. And so most people who cared about the arms race or foreign policy and didn't have a national platform, they had no way to yeah. engage in it. And it was almost a weird thing to say you were concerned about Mm -hmm. the arms race mm -hmm. because it was so big and so big and nobody else was 
in your community was concerned mm -hmm. about it. And so we saw the ballot initiative as something that people could work on, and hmm. it was amazing. We won in overwhelmingly in all uh, four uh, districts, and even towns that voted for, that was Reagan won that year, they voted for mm -hmm. the moratorium overwhelmingly. Yeah. And in the course of that, I met a couple of, particularly one wealthy individual, and realized that, um, a different kind of philanthropy could be set up that mm. would fund community-based work. Yeah. And so one thing led to the other, to the other, to the other, mm -hmm. and I was teaching at Amherst High School and I was took a leave and uh, to creating a fund, a public foundation like the uh, a community foundation mm -hmm. or United mm -hmm. Way. Yeah. Different politics, but the same idea. Sure. Where donors contribute to a pool of money that then goes out um, to community groups yeah. and state groups all around the country. So what you have to develop then is expertise in doing that because yes. what's in it for the donor is they don't know how to do that. They can't find the group in um, Illinois or the group in New Mexico or the group mm -hmm. uh, in the South. And we developed very uh, targeted strategies for getting the money out so that it wasn't just good people doing good things here sure. and there. But we targeted one time, I think it was in the 86 election cycle, 24 congressional districts where the representative was voting uh, very badly from the mm -hmm. point of view of weapons and warfare and foreign policy, okay. but had a constituency that didn't explain it. In other words, they were voting worse than they needed to yeah. to get reelected. Oh, and I we see. Had, so their voting record, they had, there was no, they were voting this way just because everybody did, not because they actually cared. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, they cared perhaps, but they weren't, the, the, um, there was a chance to pressure them the other way. Yeah, yeah. And then connecting that to groups on the ground so that we could identify these congressional districts, but if there was nobody to fund there, nobody doing then, yeah. so that narrows it down even further. So just that level of research was way more than most foundations sure. or individual donors could do. Wow. And we would bring them together to meet people from those districts. Mm -hmm. And one that was particularly uh, powerful was this group in Kannapolis uh, in the western part of North Carolina with, with big textile uh, textile mills out there. Yeah. And poor people losing, workers losing their jobs to jobs going to Central America. Okay. And they yeah. did this amazing thing where they would have two towels and they would hold it up and say, this is a towel we made here in Kannapolis and this is one that was made wherever. And those workers were totally, it wasn't anti those workers, sure. but it was, they were taken advantage of. They only got paid this much. This is how much it costs to make this one and this they sold for the same amount, have price yeah. tags on them. And they would go in uh, to the congressman's visiting hours and give this little spiel yeah. and say, why are you supporting a foreign policy uh, that that affects our relationship in Latin America, what you should be doing is protecting our jobs from these people. And the United right. States is, you know, they, they had a really easy to understand but fairly sophisticated analysis. Right. And they were, that he, his voting record in a couple of years went from, you know, 5% to, 90% yeah. on the Council wow. for Global Worlds uh, rating. Yeah. We yeah. D and so that was very successful because we were, we had outcomes that um, sure. it wasn't just, oh, the grassroots is great, mm -hmm. community organizing is really important, everybody right. should fund that, but this is actually how we're going to bring about change. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. That was a little longer than I meant to. But. So, so then, you know, that was... Uh, and if you piece. can influence philanthropy, you can, and you're good, at, you, you become skillful at it, yeah. you can influence outcomes. Wow. Because those groups, like in that group in Kannapolis, yeah. they, we gave them the means to have a platform. Sure. And what would that look like? What would a grant to them look like? $5,000. That's what I'm talking about, <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't take a lot. Or three sometimes. Or yeah. we gave them a peace award once, and they got a mm. week of a wonderful media consultant who went down for a week oh. and showed them how to write a press release, how to get media, how to do a press conference. Wow. Uh, and then they got all this media coverage. For get it was that we gave the grant. The prize came with ten thousand dollars. It was a big deal. Yeah. Um, which sure. is uh, and so they we tried to help our grantees learn. Uh, how to use the media and how mm -hmm. to promote themselves. Right. So, gosh, there was a lot of learning about following what was going on mm -hmm. in Congress and on the sort of the national level that way, but also uh, this other piece of it, the funders and, and all, um, where, where they were coming right. from. Yeah. My whole work has been around influencing philanthropy yeah. for this work. It's a fairly small, in other words, I care a lot about the issues. Yeah. Um, and I'm very engaged, uh, and I'm always looking for how philanthropy can do it smarter, usually through some kind of collaboration. Okay. That's my little yeah. uh, niche, because yeah. money can make a difference, but can also make a mess. So that is a good segue do in, harm. <laughs> into the money and politics right. work. Um, yeah. So Speak the, about that the, move, the piece, um, for a number of reasons, the nuclear movement quickly became the anti-war movement with more awareness of Central American wars and uh, that it wasn't just nuclear weapons, it was really our mm -hmm. weapons policy. Mm -hmm. And then that, then that brings up the issue, you know, uh, raises issues of justice and why we're having these wars, why we're engaged mm -hmm. in these wars around the world and these small countries around resource, right, resource. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, particularly after the Cold War ended and the wars kept going, mm -hmm. it was just an increasing awareness of justice and awareness of race and people of color. And uh, it, the, the peace movement became diffuse. Mm -hmm. And that's another whole story. We probably don't have time, but it's quite an interesting thing huh. that happened. Yeah. The other thing that happened for me and a number of people, uh, like Randy Keeler, who was mm -hmm. very much involved in the peace work as well, was seeing how... Um, we were thwarted over and over by the political process mm -hmm. and how the democracy didn't work, and particularly the role of big money mm -hmm. on weapons, the development of weapon systems, and right. uh, the uh, how money was spent in ways that really are unpopular in this country. So yeah. even when something's very unpopular, yeah. it was still going on and on because mm -hmm. of this sort of undercover big money issue. Sure. And it's partly campaign contributions, but mm -hmm. it's a whole lot of other things, the revolving door, uh, the role of lobbyists, and so on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I and a number of, I became much more, you know, over a period of time, it wasn't just like that, mm -hmm. interested in democracy work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there are all sorts of things that we're not succeeding at because of the same issue. Wow. Pretty much anything that has a budget impact, yeah. you know, Issues related to low income, education, environment, healthcare, mm -hmm. they're all 
undermined by this wow. corrupt money system. Yeah. So, uh, long story short, left the Peace Development Fund and did some consulting and um, wrote a book yeah. uh, for funders because people didn't understand this, or they may have understood it, but they didn't fund it. Yeah. We're a women's fund. Oh, we're an environmental fund. Oh, we're blah, 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 blah this. And so I had to, uh, I mean, it wasn't totally by myself, but it was somewhat of a one-woman show of mm. wrote this big book uh, it gave a lot of different ways that any funder who funds any of those issues, this should be your second yes. issue. You're an environmental funder, and this is what you also do. Right. And it had strategies and examples of... And then I went around, and I just talked at conferences and board meetings and met with individual donors. Yeah. And in the course of that, realized that the money that did exist for money in politics went to think tanks, yeah. mostly in Washington, mostly led by white men, wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful people, uh, public citizen, common cause, groups mm -hmm. that we love. Mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't, again, people on the ground didn't have any th way to engage in that. Right. So this was another fund of fund the so states. So what are some of the states, small... Especially states, because okay. sta a lot yes. of money in politics, a lot of issues play out in states, environment, healthcare, schools, yeah. everything. And people get it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, states have election laws, too. So, mm -hmm. But I interrupted you. No, no, that's okay. I, I wanted maybe an example, and you were, you were moving in that direction about it on the state level. But give us an example of um, how you did that democracy work on the state level. Well, first, uh, there were a lot of different things we did, and we may not have time for as much detail as you would like. But one of the things that was immediately important was to have data mm -hmm. about the trends. Okay. So, and they didn't exist. So the states, each state has its own uh, reporting requirements. So in Wyoming, they were they required reporting on donors. But they didn't have to be legible. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to be typed. They didn't have to be readable. And they had no capacity to, to ex examine whether they were complete or not. And there were these cardboard boxes just stuffed in a room. So they had, if you looked at the law, it looked yeah. really good, yeah. except that nobody did it. So the first, one of the first things we did was to create a project to gather data mm -hmm. and and document it, and we funded a group to create uh, a, f a protocol for how the data would be kept, and particularly so you could compare state to state. Oh, First wow. we did each state, and then we realized, wait a minute, the coal industry is doing stuff in southern Illinois, Tennessee, and yeah. we need to look at the, the coal industry. So that we funded, again, we didn't do it, we funded right. uh, people to create protocols so that uh, you, the data was consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, it was. It was. So, did you target? Did you create the little nonprofits who did the data work? Mm -hmm. We did at first, and then we realized it was inefficient. So, we funded one group in Oregon oh, to wow. work with all of them, and then we would have a conference every year to train people. Yeah. And then the next thing was to train them in how to use the data to tell the story. Yeah. So, the difference, for example, in West Virginia, we put a lot of emphasis on that between saying. The big special in oil, the, the, the coal mining industry is buying out the elections. They're buying off all the candidates and were bought and sold by the coal industry. Mm -hmm. Is completely different from saying uh, Blanken, what's it, Blanken, uh, I can't remember the name of it, 
well, X coal company gave this much money to this candidate, and they voted this way after they got the money and so on. Another was in West North Carolina. This is, I remember these numbers. The banking industry gave this much money to candidates running for the legislature in North Carolina, and two years later, they had an 800% return on their investment in the form of banking changes in the banking law oh that benefited gosh. them. Banking fees, ATM fees, transaction fees. That was So if you calculate, so the difference in being able to tell, you know, North Carolina banking industry is buying our system, sure. and uh, money put in this year, two yeah. years later, it was an 800%, 800%. Return on their investment. Yeah, people pay. That's the papers cover that second story, and they don't cover yeah. the first. And okay. they like it because you're doing their work. They don't have that sure. data. Sure, but our groups had the data, so wow. we controlled the story. Okay, they, so now we hear so much <clears throat> about money in politics and the Citizens United and all of that. So, where are we with all this? It's, it's worse. It's worse <laughs> because uh, of the. Very. This is horrible. This is what we should be focusing on now, which is the very successful campaign of the far right starting in 1973 with this guy Powell, who then was on the Supreme Court, wrote the paper and the master plan for how to create uh, corporate personhood. Yeah. So corporations have the rights of people to speech, and speech is money, and so they have, and sure. now we're dealing with religious freedom, that if right. you're a corporation and you don't like some law, like marriage equality or right. choice, or, you don't have to follow it. Yeah. So they beat us. We, we succeeded at, at one level, and they, yeah. and that, and we need to be. Is Proteus, I know you've retired from there, but is Proteus still working on? Yes, Proteus has a new collaborative fund dealing with religious exemption. That's what it's, that's what the oh, okay. laws are called, RIFRA, or Religious Exemption, yeah. Religious Freedom Exemption Act. So that they're, that's, and that's a wonderful focus because it brings together women's groups and LGBT sure. groups. So they are. And we need to get more people working on that. Well, and, and, we have to close. Think I care about this? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> this is so great. And I also need to say that, like, you have had a huge impact on the philanthropy world. In Thank her uh, retirement, this article was written, which we will put somehow a link to it um, from the, you know, on the show. Uh, it's from this uh, Inside Philanthropy. Is that a, a journal? It's a, it's a journal. A journal. It's a very good journal. And it says, Pioneer, how Meg Gage has changed philanthropy and changed the world. <laughs> and I well. know that sounds like a big thing, but I can see that you have been a thinker looking <clears throat> at the very big picture. Uh, Try. Yeah. <laughs> we all yeah. get one little shot, so we just go yeah, for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Thank All you, right. Marcy. Thank you so much. We will continue this in part two.